Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Good Life Project is brought to you by Understood Explains, a podcast that's like a beacon for parents navigating the special education system. Hosted by Juliana Urtube, a special education expert, this season is all about individualized education plans, or IEPs. Juliana breaks down complex topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP in a way that's easy to grasp. I checked out an episode of Understood Explains about the difference between IEPs and 504 plans, and I was struck by the balance of empathy and practical advice. It's not just about understanding the system. It's about empowering parents and caregivers to advocate for their children, which is just so important. So I've known a number of people who've had to literally scramble to figure out how to advocate for their kids when the system seemed to just make it so hard to get the support that they need and deserve. So if you're a parent navigating this world or even just wondering if it's right for your family, I encourage you to give Understood Explains a listen. Search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. It's like having a roadmap for a journey you didn't expect, making it a little less daunting. So imagine stepping out of your day-to-day life and just dropping yourself into a gorgeous 130-acre natural playground for three and a half days of learning and laughing and moving your body and calming your brain and reconnecting with people who just see the world the way that you do and accept you completely as you are. So that's what we've created with our Camp Good Life Project or Camp GLP experience. We've actually brought together a lineup of really inspiring teachers from art to entrepreneurship, from writing to meditation, pretty much everything in between. It's this beautiful way to fill your noggin with ideas to live and work better and a really rare opportunity to create the type of friendships and stories you pretty much thought you'd left behind decades ago. It's all happening at the end of August, just about 90 minutes from New York City. And we're well on our way to selling out spots at this point. So be sure to grab your spot as soon as you can if it's interesting to you. You can learn more at goodlifeproject.com slash camp or just go ahead and click the link in the show notes now. There's three things that I think about when I think about a good life. Words, waves, and love, you know? Fill your life with words that inspire you. And for me, that's writing and reading books. Waves, because waves have given me everything. You know, waves given me one of my best friends. It's given me, you know, career opportunities I couldn't have dreamed of. And then, you know, getting to do things with people that you love. You know, I mean, I look at all the things that have happened and, you know, a lot of the people that I have just a tremendous amount of love for in my life are the byproduct of a lot of the things that I've gotten to do. 
think it's probably a pretty safe bet to say that surfing saved today's guest's life on a number of different levels. So Srinivas Rao graduated from Pepperdine with an MBA at a time, I think it was around 2009, when essentially the economy had collapsed and there were no jobs. But that wasn't necessarily such a bad thing because in a way it forced him to really examine what he was about, what he wanted, what he didn't want. And he had become a surfer recently and become somewhat addicted to it. And the lessons, the analogies of surfing started to really lead him to redefine what mattered to him. And it served as a really powerful reset and place of contemplation and solace as he navigated his way through creating a new life. That eventually led him to writing. It led him to this fabulous world of podcasting way before most of us were ever in it. And recently led him to write a book called Unmistakable. As always, we touch on the book, but what we really explore is his journey. And we also spend a chunk of time talking about a very recent window in his journey where he went into a pretty deep, dark place. He went into a depression and I had a conversation with him pretty much when he was in the middle of it. And I didn't really realize the depth of the place that he was in until quite a long time later. And uh, we have this conversation. I think it's an important conversation because so many people, especially people who consider themselves high functioning or high achievers, go to that place or they feel the tug of it and it gets buried. It gets you know shelved. Nobody wants to talk about it. And I think that's a shame because it associates a sense of shame with it. And the more you can have public conversations with the demons that we all live with and, and live through, I think it's a better thing. So I hope you enjoy this conversation and find it interesting and enlightening. I'm Jonathan Fields. This is Good Life Project. So good to be hanging out. So how do we know each other? I was trying to remember. I couldn't for the life of me. Like, I know that we had met prior to Fargo. Yeah. You know, I, I know we were both in Fargo for Misfit, but I know I'd met you prior to that. It's possible, you know, because of Blog World or any of those places when it was called Blog World. And of course, I mean, you, people like you and Pam were kind of the early people that I was exposed to when I first started just kind of tinkering around with all this stuff. Oh, wait a minute. You know what? The story's coming to me because I, I remember you telling me something now that embarrassed me. So I think what happened was that back in the days of Blog World, which for those who don't know, was a bigger conference that was around for a bit. They had this New York session uh-huh. for one year. Yeah. And I was speaking there, and I think you told me at one point that you came up to me to say hello, and I kind of snubbed you. <laughs> and I was like, I think it was also because I was just in massive introvert mode and overwhelm mode, and I was just trying to run and just get a little break. And, and you took it as you being snubbed. And a couple of years later, you told me that story, and I was like, wait, were you in New York? I was in New York. I don't remember that. I don't either, but I might have at that time. It's possible. Yeah, I just remember being mortified that I felt like I had in some way, you know, dissed somebody. <laughs> I was like, no, man, really. I just needed to be away from people. That's funny. Yeah, that was actually my first time speaking anywhere outside of, I spoke like at a travel conference once, but that was like my first big speaking gig for the work that I was doing. Right. At that point, how far were you into the podcast? Because that was what, maybe five years ago or something like that? Yeah. So we started in 2009. Like I had a blog called The School of Life and I never really achieved liftoff with it. It wasn't unsuccessful, but it wasn't really successful either. It kind of plateaued. And, you know, I, I think we started, that's what we started as a, a weekly interview series called Interviews with Up and Coming Bloggers. And the 13th guy I interviewed emailed me one day and he said, you know, I, 
I'm going to you know, get on my soapbox here, but he said, I think you're a much better interviewer than you are a writer. So he actually suggested that we take it out and spin it out as a separate site. So we were new to – like we started this long before everybody else and their mother had a podcast. I think we were like us, Mixergy, and The Rise to the Top were sort of the three interview-based shows. And we didn't really do it because it was a trend. We didn't do it because it was cool. We were, you know, This friend said, he's like, you're good at this. And so I sent him an email and said, great, when do you want to get started? And that was the impetus for the whole thing. And we had no idea where it was going to lead us then. So we, you know, we really started as a podcast for bloggers. And at this point, it'll be seven years, I think. Yeah, that's amazing. And also, I mean, of the two other shows you just mentioned, my recollection is those are all both a video series. Yeah. So to be a pure podcast and that time, because that was a window. Now it's kind of funny because everyone's like, oh, it's a raining podcast. And yeah. It's the next generation. It's new intimate radio. And But back then, everyone was like, podcasters are the stupidest thing in the planet and they're going away. So why bother? So for you to actually double down, that was pretty unusual. Well, so here's the funny thing. You know, I, I gave a keynote speech at Podcast Movement and I opened it by saying, I don't really think of myself as a podcaster. I actually hate that label and I hate the term because it sounds so stupid and limiting. And I said, you know, I am a storyteller who happens to use podcasting as the medium by which I tell my stories, which that wasn't always the case. But I really, I think I didn't look at it as, you know, the medium. I looked at it as, okay, I'm kind of good at this. Like I'm better at this than I am as a writer, which is ironic since, you know, I have have books coming out now and the next book is all about writing and habits. But it was one of those things where it just felt very natural to me. Like the medium was natural. And I think the other thing was that I got some very, very like positive feedback early on. And I was like, okay, you know what? There could be really something here if I stick it out. And so I was kind of like, okay, you know what? We're just, we're just in this for the long haul. Like I'm not trying to, you know, climb some sort of ladder or get rich quick in any way. Yeah. When you got that feedback from guest number 13 that, hey, dude, you're actually a much better uh, interviewer than a storyteller than a writer. How did you feel about that? Well, so the interesting story about that is, you know, as many creative people do, what happened was I had tried to start a multi-author blog because I thought, okay, you know what, rather than me with this small blog, I could tap into all these beginning bloggers and we could all create a multi-author blog together about lifestyle design. At that point, it was like a cliche. Everybody and their mother had started something like this. And so the guy's name was Sid Zavara. The reason the, the email exchange took place was because I emailed him to ask if he would be willing to contribute. And he actually replied back saying no. He said, and that sounds like a giant waste of time. He said, I think it more or less it would be a waste of your time. But he said, I think your interviews are gold. And so at that point, I was kind of like, okay, wait a minute. He's not insulting me. He's definitely not saying I'm a great writer. But he said, you know, your personal development writing is good. But he said, what makes you distinctive is the fact that you have these really unique interviews and you're genuinely curious. And so that always kind of stuck with me. And I thought, okay, you know what? He's right. There's there's actually nothing he's saying is absolutely wrong because at that point, you know, personal development blogs were a dime a dozen. I mean, you know, you guys were around, you know, like you and Pam and you guys don't even necessarily fall into personal development. Like you're sort of a broader genre, but you know, you had like Leo Babauta, Zen Habits, you know, and a bunch of other people who had already kind of claimed their names in that space because they had been at it for three or four years. And so I thought, you know, he's right. Like, why would I try to compete in something where I have to, you know, basically be up against all these people when I can be one of the few if I go down the second rabbit hole. Yeah. The flip side of that, though, is that I know you don't consider yourself a podcaster, but you still don't. But yeah. you chose a very specific medium that was so unproven then. You know, it's a pretty ballsy move to say there's a market that's proven, yes, it's crowded, but at least the demand is proven and the medium is proven. And then to go and say, okay, I'm going to go away from that format. I'm going to go you know, to a medium that's been my primary source of storytelling yeah, that the world seems to be saying is dying. You know, it's unusual. But as we sit and have this conversation, you've got a book out, you've been producing 
the podcast slash media slash interview slash storytelling show for seven years called The Unmistakable Creative. You actually have become a prolific writer again. And I want to actually deconstruct all of those, but not quite yet. I want to take a step back in time. So this is kind of funny because I know a fair bit about your, I guess, modern incarnation, but I know almost nothing about sort of the young Srini. <laughs> Just because I hide it from the world. I know. It's sort of like, you know, you're very open and transparent about so much, but it's interesting is there's fairly little about, you know, you and the younger phase. Is that deliberate? I asked AJ Leon a similar question, right? I remember we had him, you know, he's a mutual friend of ours and he had somebody who had been a profound influence on my life. And I said, you know, it's weird because like you look at everything those guys do and there's a level of thoughtfulness and like attention to detail that is almost Steve Jobs like. It's pretty insane. And I remember asking him, I said, you know, I have to ask you, like, is this always been this way? Because I don't see anything that you've ever put out from the earlier days of Misfit. He's like, yeah, that's because I hide it from the world. So, you know, so to answer your question, a lot of this stems from a really weird sort of past. So I'm not the typical sort of, I was disillusioned with my successful corporate career, you know, risen to like, you know, $100,000 a year in salary and, and left my job as a successful banker and a lawyer or whatever it is to find meaning and purpose in life by doing some, you know, sort of entrepreneurial endeavor. I think most of what I've done is the result of feeling that I had no choice. Because if you look at that earlier sort of version of me, I mean, it's very clear, like if you read the book, and I've talked openly about this, I've been fired from just about every real job I've ever been at. Most of my early bosses wrote me off as not interested in controlling my own destiny, unmotivated, lazy, all sorts of things that which are amusing now because to do the work that people like you and I do requires a whole different set of characteristics than any of those things. So the funny thing is that that led me to, of all places, getting an MBA from Pepperdine. And the reason I went to Pepperdine was because I got rejected from every other business school that I applied to. Like my dream business school was to go to NYU and work in media and entertainment, which ironically I'm doing in the most roundabout way at this point. But like I really thought I wanted to work in programming at a television network and choose what went on the air. And I realized what I get to do now is run my own network and actually choose what goes on the air, but I also get to create it, which is I think deep down what I really wanted. But I also grew up in this Indian culture where we were taught very early in life that you do very pragmatic things, that nobody ever sits you down and says, you know what, you can make a career out of doing something in the arts. Like there are the rare exceptions of Indian people who have made careers in the arts. Like you look at filmmakers like Mira Nair, you know, writers like Jhumpa Lahiri, who wrote an amazing book called The Namesake, but they're really rare. You don't see this as sort of a common story among Indian American kids. I mean, my dad's a college professor. My sister is the chief anesthesiology resident at Yale. I'm this just anomaly. I always jokingly say that maybe God made a sorting error when I got, you know, paired with my family in the hospital. And so I went and, you know, I did everything that I thought you should do, which was after getting fired from all these corporate jobs, I thought, okay, you know what? Maybe the reason is I'm not qualified enough. So I went and I got an MBA and it turns out that getting an MBA teaches you absolutely nothing about running a business. It teaches you how to be a, an employee in somebody else's. But believe it or not, it's, it's one of those weird catch 22s because people ask me, do I re regret doing it? And yeah, I regret the student loan debt that's come from it. But at the same time, you know, the NBA led to Brazil, Brazil led to surfing, surfing opened up the world to me. And in addition to that, I was the social media strategy intern at Intuit, where I started getting exposed to this whole world of content creation, and started really dabbling with all of this stuff. So it, it's one of those weird things where you kind of look at it and say, Yeah, okay, I might have done things differently, I wouldn't encourage anybody to go to business school. And at the same time, like, well, there's a lot of things that happen in my life that wouldn't have if I hadn't gone there and done that. So 
to fast forward to sort of the first incarnation of all of this work, the earlier things I did were laughable. They really were. The first thing that I did online that had any sort of public presence was a website called 100 Reasons You Should Hire Me. And it was terrible. It was just abysmal in terms of, you know, creative projects. Like if you looked at that, you would never be able to look at that and predict that it would translate to what is now the unmistakable creative. And, you know, we can talk a lot about process. I think process plays a big role in all of that. But that project failed abysmally. I mean, I, I got hate mail from strangers, from classmates who had never talked to me in the two years. And I realized, you know, I think the biggest failure, I couldn't come up with a hundred reasons why anybody should hire me. But not only that, it just was poorly executed and it was everything about it was just wrong. But I think what that did for me was make me think, okay, I figured out how to get some attention, which means I might be able to actually do this the right way. And that led to starting to really kind of study this and look at, you know, what might be possible. And, and so I enrolled in a course on how to build a blog. But I think that the biggest thing, and, and this is something, you know, we'll probably come back to, is I didn't follow the instructions to the letter in that course. And that made all the difference in the world. Because what happens often is that we're given formulas and we treat them like gospel, not guidance. Like we look at what somebody like you does or, you know, somebody like Pamela Slim or somebody like Danielle Laporte. And I think the natural temptation for us is to say, okay, you know what, if I do that, I will get the exact same result. And I think what happens is we deny the very essence of what makes us unmistakable, which is us. Like you take the part of you that makes that project unique and you completely forget about it. So, you know, I'll give you an example. Anybody who's listening to this is probably familiar with Humans of New York. And, you know, Humans of New York, people think, okay, well, Brandon walks around a city and he takes pictures of people and asks them questions. I don't think that the art in what Brandon Stanton does is taking pictures. I think it's in the connection that he creates with people that gets them to open up and be as vulnerable. And what's funny is if you do a search of Humans of on Facebook, you'll find a thousand other cities trying to replicate the same result, but they're missing the ingredient, which is Brandon. So, you know, and it's funny because I didn't think I had this perspective early on. So, you know, we did all sorts of stuff. So it, largely it was a lot of early experiments. So the School of Life blog, which probably reached a couple thousand readers and some people liked it. And, you know, fast forward from 2009 to 2013, which I think is really where what I do started to really become known. And, you know, believe it or not, we go back to AJ Leon, of all people. This was one of the few afternoons I think I always look back at and think, wow, I really am so grateful that I somehow connected with him because somebody put a link to his essay collection, The Life and Times of a Remarkable Misfit, on my wall and said, have you talked to this guy? He would be a really interesting interview. And I had no idea who he was at the time. And everything that he spoke of resonated with me so much that it really fundamentally changed, I think, the way I viewed everything that I was doing. Like, I stopped looking at myself as an online marketer or a blogger, and I started to think, okay, you know what? I want to be an artist. That's a much more interesting thing to identify with because labels limit our capacity. When we say, I am just a podcaster, I am just a blogger, I'm just an online marketer, I'm just an author. And, you know, it's funny because I've done all of these things. That's because I finally have realized how much those labels limit us. Like I've produced a live event. I've co-produced an animated series with Soul Pancake based on our podcast. And I realized when you shed all these labels, the world opens up to you in a way that is just so much more expansive than it is when you identify with this one thing that you think you're known for. And of course, you know, it's not like I came out of the womb thinking all these things and having all these thoughts. It was more like an iterative process through which ideas are revealed to me, layers are shed, masks are you know, taken off. And in 2013, in addition to meeting AJ, I met another friend, a guy by the name of Greg Hartle, who I'd interviewed, who I jokingly call the Jack Bauer of the internet because he's easily the most resourceful human being I know. He has a, a crazy project called $10 on a laptop, 
where he decided to visit all 50 states, work one-on-one with 500 people, and start a business in an industry he knew nothing about. The only caveat was that the only thing he could use were the $10 in a laptop. And the way I met him was through somebody who was following some of the things that I'd written on Twitter, and somehow she connected the two of us. And I, you know, the other sort of big thread in my entire body of work is morbid curiosity. I kind of just look where the rabbit hole leads. And so I saw Greg had like 100 followers on Twitter. And if you think about it, the average person, what they do is they go and they say, okay, you know what? I want to connect with this person because they're famous. They're well-known. They have authority. They can you know, take me to the next level by being connected to them. I didn't look at it that way. I looked at it as this guy's really interesting. I just want to find out what this story is because who the hell walks out of their door with $10 and a laptop to visit all 50 states? And I met him six weeks into the project. And two years later, we did another interview. And for some strange reason of all the people he could ask, he said, hey, the project is coming to an end at the end of 2013. I'd like some help writing a book. And I'm kind of like, you're asking me. I've self-published one book that kind of did okay. You know, sometimes I wonder if he deliberately chose me because he knew he could have the kind of impact that he did. So I ended up being one of the people that he worked with one-on-one. And he was actually the one who came up with the name Unmistakable Creative. Of course, there's another sub-story in all of this that probably is worth mentioning. This is probably where my name starts to get on the radar of a lot of people. I gave this talk called The Art of Being Unmistakable in Fargo. When I came back, I had this entire just collection of things that I had written that I'd been publishing as Facebook status updates. And I thought, you know, it's time to assemble this into a book. And that book ended up being called The Art of Being Unmistakable. And of all people, in a million years, I would have never guessed, Glenn Beck found it. And so I ended up on The Glenn Beck Show. The book became a Wall Street Journal bestseller. And that ultimately kind of brings us full circle to how the Unmistakable Creative came to be because Greg came up with the name Unmistakable Creative. Like what we figured out was that we had a a really expansive body of work but it didn't have an identity. It didn't have something that said, this is who we are. This is what we stand for. And this is how we want people to feel when they come into our world. We want you to know that you have arrived at a place that is unlike any other on the internet. And we drew our line in the sand. And I think that kind of really brings us to where we are now, which is you know writing books, producing events, producing animated series, like all sorts of stuff. And of course, through all of this, there's been one underlying thread that has been something that's deeply informed my life, which is I'm an avid surfer. Cool. How does that work? <laughs> you basically just asked and answered a whole bunch of questions that I have. <laughs> so many places that I want to deconstruct here. Where do we begin? I want to talk about unmistakable. I want to talk about surfing because especially I know surfing is such a central um, part of your life. And I think that's actually probably a good place to dive in because as you mentioned, you actually got out of your MBA program at a time in history when it was the darkest hour economically in the world, which made it brutally hard for you to actually go out there and try and start a career. And so you took a left turn, depending on which way you're facing. You headed to Brazil. Yeah. Well, actually, Brazil was a study abroad. Okay. Oh, right, right. First semester of my second year. Is that where you began surfing? It was, actually. So I, the interesting story, I was supposed to be with a bunch of friends who are from Denmark. We'd become very good friends, and they all ran out of money, and we were supposed to spend New Year's Eve together. So I got stuck traveling with this guy I had absolutely nothing in common with, and we didn't really get along very well, but he liked to surf, and I, I kind of finally just got sick of sitting on the beach drinking caipirinhas, which is all we did for like six months was drink and party and hang out on the beach. And so finally, I rented a surfboard two days before I came. And to this day, I'm just like, oh, I had six months of sitting at the beach doing nothing when I could have been in the water the entire time. And I stood up and I remember thinking, okay, maybe that was a fluke. And then I got out of the water and I mean, you've had Eastkey Britain here. So, you know, anybody who's heard that interview knows like surfing does something to you. I had spent a good amount of the last few years, you know, wrestling with severe digestive issues like IBS and stress and anxiety and all sorts of stuff that came from, you know, the the working situations I was in. 
And I remember thinking, wow, this is unreal. Like everything that I have worried about and, you know, have been concerned about is just gone. Like I feel this lightness and this playfulness and this joy that I've never once experienced in my entire adult life. And I want to feel like this as much as possible. And conveniently, I was going back for my last semester to Pepperdine, which happens to be in Malibu, which is a world-class surf destination. So I didn't go to the bookstore when I got my financial aid check. I went to the surf shop. And instead of buying books, I bought a surfboard and a wetsuit. And so I started surfing between classes. And I wasn't getting good. You know, I was still terrible at that time. And not that I'm amazing now. But what happened was I had this very unusual period. Like you said, I graduated into the, the worst possible time you could have to build a career, especially as an MBA. Because, you know, I mean, prior to 2009, when you were an MBA, the expectation was you get an MBA and you'll walk out of there with at least a $90,000 starting salary a good job at like a fortune 500 company as, you know, a senior associate type position. And literally none of that was available to me all of a sudden. And so it made me start to really examine all the choices I'd made in my life up until that point. Surfing played a big role in that because what happened was I had that entire summer, which I call the endless summer from, you know, probably April until December. And I had to find something to keep me from going insane because one of the best pieces of advice I ever got was from this guy named Peter Bregman. He said, when you're unemployed, the worst thing you could do is spend all your time looking for a job. And I thought, that's so counterintuitive, but it makes so much sense. And surfing became this thing that just became this great escape. Like I would go to the beach and I would realize, I'm like, oh, wow, while I'm here and I'm in the water, I'm not worried about finding a job. I'm not worried about money. You know, at this point, we jokingly say surfers can't have real jobs because it's just this thing that becomes so addictive because it produces so much joy and pleasure in your life. And it became this metaphor for everything that was going on. Somewhere along the way, I, I can't really pinpoint where exactly this happens. And I, I'm thinking about this and it's fresh on my mind because I'm writing a talk about this right now. So there's a scene in The Matrix where Neo's about to be unplugged and they pick him up in the cab and he's about to get out of the taxi, the car that they pick him up in. And Trinity turns to him when he's about to get out and she says, you know where that road ends. And in many ways, when I looked at sort of the path of, you know, a regular job, a regular existence, you know, well-lit paths, clearly marked destinations, I was like, wait a minute, I've already gone down that road and it's going to bring me right back to where I'm at now because I've made all those choices in my 20s that have led me to where I am now at 30. I like the only way to end up in a completely different place by the time I'm 40 is to go down a road where there aren't well-lit paths, none of the destinations are clearly marked, and it's a complete unknown. I'm like, I would rather gamble on the uncertainty of that than the guarantee of mediocrity that I've already experienced. How does that play in your upbringing in the family dynamic? Because like you said, you're brought up in an Indian family, certain expectations and certain cultural beliefs. You clearly are, you know, at that point, somebody who's not wired, you know, in alignment with those expectations. But at the same time, you know, from what I know of you, you're a loving guy, you care about your family, you care about what people think. And what's going through your mind? Because on the one hand, you're like, there's this thing that you need to do where I'm clearly choosing a path where I have no idea how it's going to end. And at the same time, you know, I want to do right by my family. There's this thing that's been hardwired into you culturally for almost your entire life. That, is, I think, is one of the most challenging things. And it's so hard, I think, for somebody to truly understand if they haven't experienced it. Like, I can deconstruct it for you, and yet the only way to really understand it is to live it. Don't get me wrong. It hasn't come without its set of challenges. I mean, you and I were walking in Central Park, and I actually tell this story in the book, and I remembered it so well. 
I remember I, I met you. I was at in New York to meet with Penguin. You know, the book deal had been officially, you know, set up, and it was just time to start talking about what this book was going to be. And I remember turning to you, thinking, saying, "You know, I'm like, I hope my parents don't think I'm still screwing around on the internet now that I've gotten a book deal." It's one of those things that I, to this day, still honestly struggle with. You know, there there are moments when I'm like, "Wow, I'm 38 and I'm not married." Like I've seen all my friends get to do all these things that you know, that I, I do want in my life. Like I want to meet somebody, I want to fall in love. Like I want to have all those things happen. And then I have to always remind myself, I'm like, yeah, but I also get to do a lot of the things that I get to do because I don't have those things. I think somebody, I don't remember, maybe it was our friend Jennifer Boykin who said to me once, you know, you can have it all, but you can't have it all at once. And I thought that was actually very fitting because we really like the idea that we can have it all. But I think that none of this comes without sacrificing something. And I think for me, the big sacrifice was learning to live without getting this sort of validation for the things that I know people in our culture are typically validated for. And it's something that I have to remind myself of and work at every single day. I look at there are moments when I thought, you know, I felt sort of not validated because there are moments when oh, my parents aren't interested in my work. But then I, I kind of look at all the things that they've done that have enabled it. Like I wouldn't be able to do what I do without them, you know, being as kind as they are about it. I feel very fortunate in that they haven't quite understood it entirely. But I think for them to see that it's actually going somewhere rather than this sort of vague uncertainty that it was in the beginning has kind of enabled me to get over that part of it, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I think it kind of does. It's a, it is so interesting because you know, we all have our sort of standard set of expectations. And also in a culture where there tends to be much more emphasis on everybody complying with following a certain path because that's just what you do, you know. I had the opportunity to sit down with someone recently who's brought up in India until he was 25. And the time he was 25 is when he first decided he wanted to be a writer. But until then, he basically said the path was, you know, like you do this in school and you work fiercely hard. You give up everything, including relationships, friendships, so you can take this one test, which gets you into this one school so that you get this, you know, which is the only thing. You get this one particular job. You know, there are 3,000 people competing for every one spot. And he was kind of saying that, you know, when I tell this to a Westerner, it's just like unfathomable. But, you know, the culture I grew up in, this was the norm. And it was also, there are actually some good things about that. And so it's interesting when you have somebody who grows up in that culture. And then when you have somebody who grows up in that culture that's been transplanted into our culture, where you get exposed to two different worlds simultaneously. And now you're the first generation that kind of says, how am I going to reconcile these in a way that actually feels right for me? And am I going to? Yeah, it's so interesting because, yeah, you're, you're right. You're talking about two totally different upbringings. You know, like I had friends who grew up in India and just to, to watch them look at the life here. And at the same time, like I look at sort of the way my parents grew up in a place like that or in a culture like that, your alternatives are not, okay, I might not make it and things might not go perfectly if I go down this sort of risky path. You're kind of stuck between two extremes because the way society is set up there. If you don't do something that guarantees a safe and secure living, the alternative is extreme poverty. Like there's sort of no in between. And it's really hard in those kinds of environments to get out of the situation that you're in. So no parent will encourage you. I realize that's a big part of the way my parents were raised is because if they chose to do something that didn't lead to security, the end was disaster. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, which brings up another interesting question in my mind, which is that you know, people ask this sort of said this to me, um, you know, you got an MBA, I got a JD. So I went to law school and then I went out of practice for about four or five years. And when I decided to leave it all behind, there's in my mind, I was done. But 
every once in a while, someone will say, well, but sure, you know, like you can go out and be an entrepreneur, you know, but you always know in the back of your mind, you have this degree and should you need to, you know, you can always go back and do that. What was your thought pattern around that? Because you did, you had an MBA from a good school and God forbid, you know, this path less trodden doesn't work out for you. You've got this unique degree and, you know, to fall back on. You know, it's interesting you say that because I felt, I think at a certain point, I looked at the job history and the degrees and I thought, you know, I'm like, this is going to lead to nothing because it led to nothing. So I, I actually thought it wasn't something I had to fall back on. And what's interesting is now, seven years later, I look at the body of work that I've created, the things I've learned from the people that I have talked to and all the skills that I've developed as a result of this. And now I kind of like, okay, now I feel like if it doesn't work out, which is funny because, you know, I'm getting to do all the things that I had aspired to do seven years ago, I would be far more valuable to somebody now than I ever was then. Hmm. And interestingly too, since you started now, the world that you're operating in, you know, the media that you've chosen that was so risky has become, you know, like the leader of this zeitgeist. It's sort of like the end thing right now. So it is interesting how it all comes full circle. Yeah, you know, I, I jokingly say that we were, you know, seven years ahead of the, the curve on a trend. You know, we we were just very fortunate to have the timing that we did. Tell me more about surfing. So this becomes a part of your life where you're kind of doing it on a regular basis. And, yeah. But it's also, it literally, you know, it sounds like it's something that kind of breathes you in a major way. You know, in addition to becoming this thing that just brought this insane amount of joy to my life, it so, you know, if, if you look at habit formation in general, what happens is if one habit starts to change after a certain point and creates a ripple effect through your life, through all these other habits. So, you know, I mean, I went from being the person who would stay out till two in the morning drinking and smoking cigarettes when I drank to going home at 10 o'clock and being up at five in the morning so I could be in the water. And it's funny because you look at it, you know, we talk about what's involved in living a creative life and doing this kind of creative work. And all of a sudden, you know, I have a tremendous amount of physical energy. My physical health is completely different than it's ever been. I feel younger and more vibrant at 32 than I did at 22. And as a result, I've got all this sort of energy that, you know, comes from being in the ocean. You know, people say surfers are a tribe and they feed off this energy of being in the water. And that energy is something that I bring to the work that I do on a daily basis, you know, so much so that I can quite literally say that surfing transformed both my life and my career because that became the entire organizing principle for how I ended up writing a book. And the other thing I always jokingly say is surfing is like going to a church, a bar, and a gym all in one activity because it meets your physical, social, and spiritual needs. And you know, I have friends that I surf with, and it's funny because I couldn't tell you if we've ever done anything together because we never have dinner together. Like, hey, you want to hang out? It's like, what are we going to do? We're going to go surf. You know, my business partner Brian, I ended up meeting because we surf together, and he's one of my best friends now. And it became an outlet for dealing with stress, for dealing with anxiety. You know, over and over, and I know you know this through a lot of the work that you've done and a lot of the people that you've talked to. We all know that exercise tends to be one of those things that nearly every successful person who is a high performer in every field continually points to. So it's become, you know, a physical practice, it's become a spiritual practice, and it's become a social outlet all in one thing. And it deeply informs the way I think about life, the way I think about the world. I think the ocean really is such a profound metaphor for the way we actually live, because it's constantly changing. It's constantly dynamic. You know, you can show up one day and the conditions are terrible. You show up tomorrow, the same surf break that was absolutely terrible yesterday is just firing and going off with one perfect wave after another the next day. And that to me is so 
much like what we experience in life, especially when we decide to go down a creative path that's incredibly uncertain. Yeah. And it's interesting. I mean, like you said, it's got all the different elements. It's got the salvation element, the challenge elements, like, and the solitude and all wrapped up in one experience. I've done like the smallest amount of it. Wouldn't consider myself in any way proficient. But I have, what's interesting is I have so many of my friends, people that have actually been in business with in the past have been hardcore surfers. And I've always been drawn to really trying to understand why. And also I keep saying, it's like every summer, this is a summer. <laughs> but I haven't, and then I, I have the chance to sit down with Iski, who you, you said, and for those who've listened to in the past, Iski Britton is Iris Big Wave Surfer, one of the top in the world. And she's just this tremendous woman who's also a PhD and doing incredible work in the world. And, you know, it seems like the, tell me if I'm getting this wrong, but it seems like it's almost like whenever you bring to the water, it gives you what you need back. You know, I grew up, I didn't grow up surfing, but I grew up on the water and it was always my experience. It was the place where for some reason I would always go and I continue to go to Touchstone because there's just something about it. It's interesting. I think in a lot of ways, everybody has said this, you get out of the water in a very different headspace than you do when you get in, assuming that you've had a good surf session and caught a lot of waves. Like, I think what it does is it resolves whatever you're dealing with. It literally washes away all your worries when you're in the ocean. It's incredibly healing. That is, I think, the real draw to it. No matter what is going on in your life. And I remember meeting a guy on the beach. This was when I had first started surfing, really surfing hardcore. And it was right after I'd finished business school. And, you know, I was sort of, you know, it's funny because you can spot beginning surfers because they carry these blue, giant blue foam Costco boards and they don't know what they're doing. They look like idiots in the water, but I was there every day. So I was really actually getting quite good with this blue board. And, you know, I see this guy as we're showering off at the showers at this place called Bay Street in Santa Monica. And we get to talking because, you know, you always chat with other surfers about the conditions and, you know, what's going on. And, you know, I tell them that I have just finished grad school and I'm kind of down and, you know, I can't find a job, but this is actually keeping me grounded and, you know, keeping me going. And he tells me that, you know, surfing had gotten him through the death of his mother who died of cancer. It had gotten him through a divorce. And I think really for so many people who do it, it actually starts to become a form of therapy. It becomes this thing that just creates so much peace in your life. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense, actually. It's interesting, too, you reference a couple of times, the just sort of being in a bit of a down place. One of the conversations that we had, actually, when we were both out in Fargo, North Dakota, at Misfit, and I remember bumping into you, we were just kind of hanging out, and I talked to you in a while, and um, it was a couple of years. I was like, hey, what's up? And you were telling me that I think it was in then that you were either still in or had just emerging from a really tough time. And you actually write about this in the book, you know, under the umbrella of the impact zone is sort of the analog in surfing. Take me there a little bit. Yeah, I'm happy to. I, I figured you'd ask about this. And it's funny because I, I don't think a lot of people know in detail about it. I mean, I've, I've made subtle references to it on the show, but I, I, knew, I think the first time I've talked so openly about it was in the book. And I felt that it was probably one of the most important chapters to talk about because let me tell you the story of, of, you know, kind of what led there. It was a combination of a lot of things all at once. You know, for the better part of eight months, I was on what you would probably call a pretty incredible ride. I mean, if you looked at my sort of Facebook status updates from probably like summer of 2013 till May of 2014, it was almost like I could do no wrong. Everything in my life started to come together in a way that it never had. And especially after so many years of enduring a lot of uncertainty. And, you know, like my story wasn't one of, you know, like working for three years and having the blog take off and having everything take off. 
it was very much like a lot of ups and downs. And finally, I'd hit sort of this big upswing with, you know, Glenn Beck, the rebrand of, of the show, you know, more money coming in. You know, we went from something like $600 in the bank in June to about $140,000 in the bank by January. And, you know, don't get me wrong. Some of that was revenue for our event, which, you know, you end up spending a lot of it. And then you have this other thing that really defines your life, you know, which has been planning this event for so long. And of course, there, you know, there's some personal relationship related stuff that happened as well. And in the span of about three weeks, it all came to an end all at once, like all of it. You know, sponsors didn't renew their contracts. The event was over. Somebody left my life that I didn't think was going to leave my life anytime soon. And I was devastated because it was going from an extreme high to an extreme low really fast. And, you know, I, I thought that would be the end of it. You know, it was when I met you in Fargo, that was almost about two weeks after all of this had happened. And I thought, okay, you know what? Like, I'm sad this is going to lift. I'll pull out of this. And it just got worse. It got worse and worse and worse and worse. You know, there were days when I couldn't get out of bed in the morning. Like, almost everything would reduce me to tears. I, I had a very difficult time being in public around people. And I was kind of a nightmare. And, you know, when you have a public presence, you're held to incredibly high standards of what's expected of you because you're a public figure. You can't have a meltdown on social media. Like, and eventually, I mean, it got into the point where, you know, a partner bailed out on us for the business. My mentor was very ill and he handed back all of his equity. And I was stuck with this idea that, wow, everything I've done has failed. I, and, you know, the same event, which had sold out in two weeks the year before, ended up being canceled by the first week of January. And I mean, that was the low point. Like at that point, I was like, okay, this is really kind of it. I'm like, what's the point? I don't have any reason to live anymore. I'm never, and the worst part was because I, always felt that the alternative of just going and getting a job was something that wasn't available to me based on my job history. I thought, oh my God, I'm totally screwed. Like there's nothing I can do and I'm never going to get out of this. And then it really, I think, hit. We had gone out and surfed, my, my friend Brian, who's my business partner and I, and we got out of the water and, and we'd been in the water for four or five hours. And I mean, it was wave after wave after wave. And if you have a session like that, normally you get out of the water and you're just, you know, like they call it stoked. You feel you know this incredible high, and I felt nothing at all. And then there's a picture of us on the beach that he took. You know, we put it on Instagram, and he looked at it, and he he actually sent me a text. And he said, you know, he said I actually legitimately think that you're actually dealing with clinical depression. He said, I'm looking at this picture of you, and I said, I've, he said I've seen tons of pictures of you. He said you look emaciated, and you're wearing a wetsuit. So at that point, I finally saw a doctor, and I was in this you know cycle of all of the things going wrong in my business life and my personal life feeling like that. And I, I couldn't sleep. So I, I finally was like, all right, you know, you had Ariana Huffington here. So she's talked extensively about the you know importance of that. And I was waking up in the middle of the night with heart palpitations. So finally I went and saw a doctor and you know, it's funny that we're talking about this because for the first time since that moment, just this past Sunday, I got out of the water and I was like, Oh my God, I feel the buzz again. And I was like, I've been missing how this feels for almost 18 months. What was it like just to be aware of that? It was scary. I mean, it was really, really scary because, you know, you're like, I was going to sleep almost every night, kind of literally hoping that maybe I won't wake up tomorrow. And not only that, you know, wondering who you can talk to about this, knowing that there are only a handful of people that you can talk to about it. You know, and I, and I saw a therapist the entire time, like I started to probably around June or July. And, you know, I, I think the reason I, I'm really actually happy that you brought this up is because I think we have a real problem in our unwillingness to talk about this. It's such a taboo subject to talk about anything mental illness. And I, for the longest time, I thought it was very, very like isolated to 
you know, the Indian culture, which I, I, you know, I mentioned that, but I'm realizing more and more, like, as I look online and I watch the way people portray their lives, that we're very scared to talk about the darker chapters of our life. And yet I think, you know, like we only get wake up calls when we hear like an Aaron Schwartz story. And I think that's really unfortunate that we've gotten to that point. Luckily, I think, you know, you're seeing more and more people who are willing to have conversations about this, like the work that people like Jerry Colonna are doing at Reboot. And the other thing you, you start to realize is that this is way more common than we think it is. And it's way more common among really high performing people than we might think it is. That I think gave me a lot of solace in looking at it and saying, okay, wait a minute. There are people who have achieved really grand and significant things who have basically pulled through situations far worse than this. But I think, you know, we gotten to the point where we, you know, our world is so driven by the idea of positive psychology and self-improvement that there's a tremendous stigma around saying, you know what, I take medication because if I didn't, I couldn't sleep at night and it would exacerbate the whole situation. That we've done everything possible to avoid because that in and of itself carries a whole narrative with it. So there's so many places we could go with this. So tell me where you want to go. I agree. It's bizarre to me that at this day and age, and we're recording this in 2016, where the public spin is that there's no stigma anymore. It's totally normalized. You know, everyone has a therapist. So many people are going to go through some form of anxiety or depression. So it's just kind of a, a pretty regular. But the truth is from so many people that I've either been close with or it's like you're saying, it's not normalized, not nearly in the way that or accepted as this is something that many people go through, even that it's it's not a judgment on who you are, on your value, and that what you said, you know, the idea that many of the highest performing people in the world also have and likely will go through moments of uh, extraordinary, you know, emotional swings that can manifest in all sorts of really major challenges. I wonder if social media also makes it a lot worse because, you know, you look on Facebook and it's all about my shiny, happy life and it reinforces the fact that, you know, you're not one of them. Yeah. Well, I actually want to talk about the social media piece of this in quite a bit more detail because I became hyper aware of everything related to social media during this period. And, you know, anybody who knows me knows I have really just ridiculous routines that I, I abide by in order to maintain my creative habits. And where I got really clued into the effect that social media has on us is through the work that Simon Sinek did in his last book, Leaders Eat Last, where he dedicates an entire chapter to dopamine. And the book is worth reading for that chapter alone, because what he said is that when we get these constant likes every time we log into Facebook, what you're getting is a surge of dopamine. And of course, dopamine is incredibly addictive. But what happens is you're getting this constant surge of dopamine that doesn't last, like the fulfillment that comes from that doesn't last. And what's funny is we do this all day long, every single day. And, you know, like you start measuring your worth in Facebook likes and comments. And it's funny because I know it all too well, especially from the last year, because the last, you know, couple of years, last probably 16 months or so, maybe nine months or so, my highlight reel from my life looks really amazing on Facebook. I never talked about any of these things publicly on Facebook because it's inappropriate. And I think social media absolutely does exacerbate the problem. I think we have actual like research, scientific research to show this. And so as a result, I've actually been very mindful of how I spend my time online and I try to limit it. I've deleted every app from my phone. I don't use email from my phone. Every now and then I'll reinstall them if I'm on like a flight somewhere and I'm not going to have access to a computer for several hours. But I realized that like just putting this sort of, you know, restrictions in your life can actually increase your happiness significantly. Yeah, it's interesting. I agree with that. I have almost no social media apps on my phone. I do have email, but, uh, 
But it's interesting because you know, on the one hand, just having them there means every time you look at your phone, you're going to see the little icon from it and your brain is going to be called to, you know, like, oh, I haven't checked that in the you know, last 32 seconds, <laughs> you know, and then once you check it, depending on the state, if you're in a really good place in your life, you know, you may look at it and say, awesome, you know, they're my friends, we're all doing really good things, it's cool, it's fun. But if you're in a dark place in your life, and maybe it's just a dark moment, you know, on a given day, you know, if it reinforces for that moment that everybody else is doing so great and and I'm a screw up or this is going right or in some way, if that becomes a recurring pattern where it starts to reinforce that that horrendous message that is so often a part of depression, which is that, you know, tomorrow is not going to be any different than today, then anything that reinforces that message can be devastating. So I think on the one hand, I feel like, you know, technology is really has given us access to people and resources that may make the ability to navigate struggling with any form of depression or anxiety better. But on the other hand, it's also a double-edged sword. You brought up one really important component of this, which is people and resources. I mean, I think that probably the the biggest thing that played a role in my being able to navigate this period were people, you know, community and support. And it was, you know, from a handful of close friends, you know, I, I think that you kind of start to figure out that, okay, you know what, there's only a handful of people that can really guide me through this, that I can talk about this because they're the ones who they're not going to judge me for this. They'll be there unconditionally. And, you know, one of those people was my, my business partner, Brian. I, I, I honestly wouldn't have made it through without him. And I think what we try to do, especially because everybody appears to be sort of the quote unquote personal brand behind the empire that they are creating, what you don't see is how many other people it really takes to make all those things happen. You know, even looking at the process of a book, I remember El Luna was telling me, she says, yeah, so I wrote a book. But she says, there's an editor, a designer, you know, an entire team of people who work on making this thing become a reality. And I think that applies to nearly everything that I do. And I think we really, really need community and support systems to get through difficult periods of our lives. And I think the danger is that we think that online can be a substitute for having those types of people in person in our lives. I don't remember who it was. I think it was a doctor that I saw at one of the summit events. And he said more and more, a lot of the things that we used to do to create community, like come to each other's houses for dinner, are happening less and less. Probably one of the most important things I do every single week is I meet with my business partner, Brian. Fortunately, he happens to surf, so we just meet at the beach. And we do almost all our meetings in the water. And then we have lunch after. Yeah, I'm so on board with that. Just the creating that sense of online community is something that I spent a lot of time thinking about. And it's interesting also, as you were speaking, one of the things that's gone through my head was, well, in addition to just moving through this very personal and deep struggle, you're also at the same time, use the board of public person. And so you feel like on the one hand, you need to honor and just get through this and let out what needs to come out. But at the same time, you have a certain public persona that people are counting on and you have to, you know, engage. So I'm curious, you said when we started a conversation, you actually used the phrase morbid curiosity as one of the things that absolutely drives you. And from what I know, you know, and tell me if this is right in your circumstance, one of the things that goes immediately that's the hardest to find in the depths of depression is curiosity. So I'm curious how, how you navigated both finding that and also being so public and what's interesting is, because I don't think this is just a question about you, it's, you know, you said you're a public person, but the truth is the way that so many of us use social media these days, on some level, we're all public people. So we all have to navigate this thing. That was definitely one of the more challenging aspects of this. Like you said, I have a public person, and not only that, I have 
a show where I interview people. So people hear my voice every week and I never stopped working during any of this period. Like we just kept producing stuff. But what's interesting is that if you actually go back and listen to the interviews, you can tell that I was definitely asking a lot of questions to deal with my own struggles. And I, you know, I still have a lot of questions that are driven by my curiosity about that period. In one way, I think the really great thing that came from all of it was that I, I think I have a deeper and sort of more empathetic understanding of dealing with issues like this. So I can ask questions that I don't think ever would have come up had I not gone through this. And in the short run, it was kind of annoying. In the long run, I think it's made the depth of the conversations I have with people much more profound. That you know, I mentioned Jerry Colonna earlier, who you know was a venture capitalist who worked with Fred Wilson, also another famous venture capitalist. And you know, I asked him a lot of questions because he covers some really, really deep territory on in the work that he does at Reboot. And he told me something that really kind of struck me. He said, "You wouldn't ask the questions that you do if you didn't have the difficult stories yourself." But so in terms of the work, I think I was able to pour it into the work. In terms of actually dealing with people in public, I avoided every public appearance I could on purpose. I really wasn't sure how to handle dealing with people in public because, I mean, you saw me in Fargo. I mean, more than a handful of times, I was just really not well, like breaking down in tears. I went to World Domination Summit in 2014, and then I pretty much never showed my face in public with the exception of very small dinners where I kind of knew who would be there and I knew whether I could handle facing them or not. So I, you know, I purposely actually, you know, it's funny because I could say that I didn't come because, you know, we couldn't afford to do it as a company, but I actually didn't come to Fargo this year because I didn't want to. I didn't go to the World Domination Summit because I didn't want to. I was kind of like, I'm not ready to handle big crowds at this point and answer a lot of questions that I feel will be incredibly uncomfortable, which is funny because I'm about to have to answer a lot of these questions yeah. very publicly, considering it's all in a book now. And that's sort of like the center of my curiosity, which is that you've got a book coming out right now and it's you have all these amazing analogies to surfing as a metaphor for becoming unmistakable and building something extraordinary. But you also, this is the first time where you really share a lot of this journey. So when you think about the fact that, okay, now you've actually, you're not only going public, but with this part of yourself, you're, it's not the whole story, of course, it's certainly a chunk. And you know that part of the process of bringing a book to the world is that you go out there and you, you know, for a shortish window of time, you're generally as public as you can be. What goes through your mind? I thought a lot about that chapter, especially because I've gotten, you know, some friends to do early reads of that chapter. And every one of them has said, that's the chapter that's going to make the book. That's the one that will resonate so much with people. Because what I realized was the most important thing I could do was to show the world that I'm human and I'm fallible and unbreakable. I'm not immortal. And, you know, I don't have this shield that keeps any of the world's problems from occurring to me. I'm just like all the people who I've interviewed, all the people who listen to our show. More than anything, what I hope it does is take me off of, of a pedestal of being, you know, all these labels that people identify me with and potentially look up to. I felt that it was a really important chapter because it would be really easy to gloss over all of that and not tell that part of the story. But I felt if I didn't tell that story, I would be not really authentic, which, you know, more and more, every, I mean, the word authentic probably comes up a hundred times every time I ask people the question, what do you think it means to be unmistakable? And I thought, you know, not telling this would be the antithesis of everything that I believe in. It's funny in my mind, it kind of telegraphs and meshes that unmistakable does not mean unbreakable. Yeah. They're two different things and you can be both and you will be both. So 
probably a good time to come full circle as you think about, because it really feels like the last year or so has been this return to the Serenian side, you know, stepping back into what lights you up, into your essence, rediscovering curiosity and writing this book and coming out into the world. Kind of, it feels like you're in a building phase when you look at the future. It feels like just talking to you, there's a flicker of possibility in you, which is growing into an emperor. And when you think about the bigger question, which I always end with, which is, what does it mean to you to live a good life? What comes up? You know, it's funny. I've heard so many people answer this question and listen to you ask it so many times. And I had been thinking a lot about this question. And, you know, I think for me, it always comes back to the three things that I think about when I think about a good life, words, waves, and love, you know, fill your life with words that inspire you. And for me, that's writing and reading books, waves, because waves have given me everything, you know, waves given me one of my best friends. It's given me, you know, career opportunities I couldn't have dreamed of. And then, you know, getting to do things with people that you love. You know, I mean, I, I look at all the things that have happened and, you know, a lot of the people that I have just a tremendous amount of love for in my life are the byproduct of a lot of the things that I've gotten to do. So, you know, I think those three things to me, every day that I get to experience those three things are days that I'm living a good life. Yeah. Love it. Thank you. Yeah. Hey, thanks so much for listening. We love sharing real unscripted conversations and ideas that matter. And if you enjoy that too, and if you enjoy what we're up to, I'd be so grateful if you would take just a few seconds and rate and review the podcast. It really helps us get the word out. You can actually do that now right from the podcast app on your phone if you have an iPhone. You just click on the reviews tab and take a few seconds and jam over there. And if you haven't yet subscribed while you're there, then make sure you hit the subscribe button while you're at it. And then you'll be sure to never miss out on any of our incredible guests or conversations or riffs. And for those of you, our awesome community who are on other platforms, any love that you might be able to offer sharing our message would just be so appreciated. Until next time, this is Jonathan Fields signing off for Good Life Project. Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.